All right, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, let's go to 2 Peter. I'm oh, sorry, 1 Peter. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black card back underneath the seat around you. We'll go to 2 or 1 Peter. I'm sorry. Got that written down wrong on my sheet. I know it's a mean Sunday because we will be flipping to Daniel, okay? So two books that are kind of hard to get to. Uh, we'll start in 1 Peter. If you want to go ahead and get to Daniel, we will head on over there eventually and land in chapter 2. We're in the middle of a series uh, where we are walking through the book of Daniel. Uh, and so we started last week with chapter 1, uh, and we'll continue on this morning with a bit of chapter 2. I want to say Happy Father's Day to all of our fathers, okay? So I know on Mother's Day we get nice, like, cute little flowers. Chris wanted to get all the dads a pink rose, okay? I told him we're not doing that. I think he's been watching The Bachelor or something like that, so we're about to implement some church discipline around here, okay? So don't worry, we got, we got things under control. I was a very little kid when I realized that not everyone's dad could be the best dad in the world, okay? But I'm sure that all of us are great dads if you are a dad and want to say Happy Father's Day. There is, however, one person with a shirt that says best dad, uh, so there's got to be some legitimacy uh, if, if you've got this shirt, okay, I don't think they give those things out uh, just for free. Um, but happy Father's Day if you are a father. Um, we, uh, we need good, uh, godly fathers, and so we're glad that you are uh, here with us this morning celebrating. Do, before we get into the uh, sermon, want to just draw your attention. Tomorrow night we'll start our first elephant in the room. Uh, and so the topic, the first one up on the docket is uh, evolution and creation. So questions like how do Christians... Uh, how should we read Genesis 1? Can a Christian believe in evolution? Um, that kind of hot-button issue, okay? So you, if you have questions, if you have uh, kind of thoughts on that, come and join us. If you've never been to Elephant in the Room, what it is, we'll have two people up there, up here. They'll both represent uh, an issue, one of the sides of the, uh, the issue one position. They'll kind of present their, uh, their position, their side, and then we'll open up to Q&A and to discussion. And so it's a fun time. It's, it's pretty engaging. We have some honest and, and open and frank discussions. So uh, tomorrow night, 730, it'll be up here. Uh, and you can come and, and join us, particularly if you're interested in that kind of thing, uh, come on up and uh, bring your thoughts and bring your opinions, and, and we would love to have you. Okay, so Second Peter, First Peter, good grief, i got to stop doing that. Oh, it's going to be a long morning, all right, buckle up. First Peter chapter 2, okay, let's read verse 9, uh, verse 9 through 12. First Peter chapter 2. But you, listen up, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, this is kind of going to be a theme verse for us out of the New Testament for our series uh, through the book of Daniel. If you remember from Daniel 1 yesterday, or, or last week, we saw Daniel and his friends are these Israelite men, these young men, probably 15, 16 years old. They're in the royal family of Israel, um, Judah, the southern nation, and they are taken into captivity. They're exiled and taken from their nation to the nation of Babylon. Babylon at the time is kind of the height of civilization, okay? Wealthy, luxurious, um, a very powerful empire. With that kind of glitzy empire, though, there's this seedy kind of underbelly of violence uh, and, and oppression and control. Babylon is this kind of sprawling empire taking over country after country. They take over Judah, and as part of their kind of process of building empire, they take some of the best of the best, and they bring them over to their country to try to kind of convert them to their way of life, to their culture, uh, to, to their way of thinking and being and acting and doing and living, uh, their way of worshiping, their way of, of relating to others, their way of talking, their way of reading, their way of speaking, all these kind of things. And so they take Daniel and they take some of his friends to Babylon um, and, and they live there in exile. And the question for Daniel and his friends is how are they going to be faithful to their God? when they're in Babylon, because they're surrounded by all kinds of temptations. They're surrounded by all kinds of distractions and pitfalls. Um, and it's going to be a hard task for them uh, to remain faithful, to keep their identity intact, uh, to continue to be Israelites in Babylon. Psalm 137 has this haunting question that we'll keep coming back to as we read through the book of Daniel. And the question is this. It's, it's written by some people in the exile, and they say, how can we, sitting on the shores of Babylon, Okay, seen as the enemy people. These are the, the, the most evil people. They came in and defeated us and destroyed us. How can we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? 
as we sit on the shores of Babylon? How can we sing the songs of Zion? How can we remain God's people, even though we're surrounded by all these temptations and all these, these pitfalls and all these distractions? Um, so you'll remember Daniel and his friends, they go to Babylon and they're given a new education. So for three years, they're trained in the literature and the language of Babylonia. They're given new names, okay? these kind of new identities, new destinies. And remember, we talked about they might have even had their genders erased. I mean, they might have even become eunuchs. And so this last week, I was kind of trying to imagine myself in that situation, okay? Play, play the imagination game with me for a second. Imagine you were uprooted, okay, right now, um, however old you are, kind of whatever situation you're in, and you're taken to another nation, away from everyone you know, away from the life that you know, and, and not just like a, another nation like Europe, right? And you're like, oh, France, I can live with that. Um, but, but a nation that you might not naturally like that much. You might even think they're kind of on the wrong side of things, right? So maybe imagine that you were taken to Iran, okay, or Iraq, um, and, and you're taken there and you're thrust into kind of the middle of that civilization, um, and you're kind of force-fed their literature and philosophy and their religion and those kind of things. You're given a new name, a new identity. You're kind of plucked out of everything that you know. There's all these temptations, all these distractions for three years. You're surrounded by these, these different things. <laughs> You're given a, a new name, a new education. Perhaps your gender's erased, right? I mean, imagine just kind of how disoriented you'll, you, you'd be. And then this is kind of the situation that Daniel and his friends are facing as they try to remain faithful in Babylon. Now, the, the reason we're studying Daniel is because, uh, as we talked about last week, I don't think our situation as Christians, particularly in the kind of place and time we are, is all that different from what Daniel and his friends were experiencing as they, they try to stay faithful despite a world around them uh, that wasn't very friendly to them, that wasn't going to help them stay faithful. Uh, you and I, I think, are pretty aware of the fact that we live in a time and in a place uh, where we're surrounded by distractions and we're surrounded by temptations. And much of what's around us and much of what is trying to educate us and trying to pull our loyalty and our attention is not Christian. And it's not um, directed towards us following Christ and us being faithful as Christians and living out the identity that we have been called to. Uh, we discussed last week that we're living in the midst of a time at least that, that you might call post-Christendom. Okay, and So this time where the church has had a lot of influence in the world is slowly starting to wane. Um, you're seeing Western Europe kind of ahead of the, the curve over here. Okay, So over in London we told the story, a, a post-Christendom world okay, where the church has kind of moved out of the center of society um, Kids grow up, they don't know the Christmas story. Uh, they, don't, they don't know these kind of basic things about Christianity. Christianity is no longer kind of the center of everyone's life. And, and everyone is not just a Christian. So I wasn't this old, okay? I wasn't around at this point. But I'm told way back when, everything used to be closed on Sunday. Uh, so it was like Chick-fil-A, but for everything, right? <laughs> Which is awful. And I was asking our first service, kind of the older crowd, I was like, was it as frustrating for y'all as Chick-fil-A is for me now? I mean, everything. And she's like, no, I mean, everything was closed, so you kind of had to go to church. There's nothing else to do. I was like, well, that's an interesting strategy. Um, but it used to be, right? I mean, almost uh, the whole city, right? It was kind of built around the rhythms of the Christian church. You take Sunday off. Businesses closed down. There were different kind of legislative uh, 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 policies in place that, that had a very clear kind of Christian basis. And you're seeing that kind of fall apart. And particularly these last few elections, you're seeing this get really kind of um, nasty, right? As people want still this power, this control, but they're not quite able to get it. We're going from the majority to kind of the, the minority in society. And, and what I want us to realize is that this isn't just maybe our experience, um, this is also, I think, a good biblical metaphor for us. I think this is how the people of God often have to live their lives, as a minority group, as a, as a kind of an outpost group, in the midst of a people who don't think like they think, and don't act like they act, and, and don't worship the same God that they worship. The Jews had to do this. So, so we'll see all throughout the Old Testament, even Daniel, um, they're in exile, and they're having to forge an identity in exile. They're having to keep... Um, they're kind of religious and moral compass in a world that's, that's confusing and distracting and tempting. Um, in the New Testament, we see this here in, in 1 Peter. Okay? He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. I urge you as people who aren't familiar and comfortable in the culture that's around you to stay pure, to stay faithful. I mean, the early Christians that, that Peter's writing to here, they were a minority group, much like we are and much like the future that we're headed towards. Um, and so this kind of the kind of the imagery that we want to play with as we walk through the book of Daniel. Okay, so if you're walking along on our worship guide, this is our first kind of blank. 
resident aliens, okay? This is the title of our series. We're, we want to picture ourselves and picture the church as resident aliens, as Christians uh, being exiles in a foreign culture, being exiles in a foreign culture. And so if you remember Daniel, we can flip over to Daniel chapter 2, okay? Daniel chapter 2, if you'll remember Daniel, uh, split up into two parts. So in the first part of Daniel, you have these stories, these narratives, these kind of hero stories, okay? And in each chapter is the self-contained unit. And then the second part of Daniel, you have these apocalyptic visions. So into the world type stuff, okay? Um, things blowing up, kingdoms crumbling, numbers and signs and all this kind of fun, weird stuff, okay, that, that we'll have a lot of fun with. Um, now in Daniel 2, if you read it this week, you get a mixture. You get kind of both of them, okay? You get this story about Daniel's friends and you get a weird dream with a kind of an interpretation, okay? Uh, so what we're going to do is we're actually going to split Daniel 2 up into two weeks, okay? So we'll cover the kind of story, the narrative this week, and then we'll head back to the dream next week, okay? And look at the interpretation and try to do some, uh, some groundwork there. So Daniel 2, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. We get a story here of Daniel, again, as he tries to keep his identity and stay faithful uh, in exile in, in Babylon. So Daniel 2, we'll pick it up in verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. So Neb becomes an insomniac here. Verse 2, the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, This word for me is firm. If you don't make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Now, you think your boss is bad, okay? <laughs> places, places bad uh, demands on you. Um, Neb comes and says, not only do I want the interpretation for this dream, I want you to tell me what the dream is, okay? So in the ancient kind of culture, dreams played this real important role in how divinity would communicate to people, even for Jews and even for Christians in the New Testament. They had this firm belief that God sometimes communicated through dreams, the, these prophetic dreams and prophetic visions, and particularly for the Babylonians, they were all about this, okay? They had this kind of foot in this kind of magical enchantment camp, okay, where there are all these visions and dreams and you had to interpret them. We, we actually have historical evidence. We have uh, artifacts of these huge books from Babylon um, for these interpreters. So there was this official kind of class of people who it was their job to interpret dreams. And they had these massive kind of dictionary-like books where they had a record of all the different dreams of the past and then the interpretations of them. And so what would happen is the king would have a dream and he'd bring his interpreters, okay, this kind of his like cabinet of interpreters, and they'd come forward, he'd tell them the dream, and they would do the hard work of going through this, these huge books, right, and figuring out all the different things that were in his dream and what they might mean in their interpretation and kind of coming up with their best guess and then going back to the king. Um, they were kind of like lawyers who would like read through the tax code, right? I mean, these were like massive, massive dictionaries of, of dream interpretation kind of manuals. Uh, and so he has this big cabinet. He brings them in to tell them the, the dream that he has. Now, there are two options here. Some people think Nebuchadnezzar forgot the dream. So he had this dream. He, it kind of troubled him. But it's one of those things where I don't know if you wake up and you know you had a dream. And you know it might have been important or interesting or scary or whatever. But you can't remember it at all. And some people think that's why he's asking. He's like, no, you got to tell me the dream. Others think Nebuchadnezzar is testing them here. That he realizes this is an important dream and it's going to affect kind of the future of what's going to happen to his kingdom. And he's, he kind of called the bluff on the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers, okay? He's saying, look, I want you to tell me the dream. I want proof that you can kind of tap into this, this extra dimension, this kind of divine communication. And so he sets this test for them. And then he, he makes the rewards really high. And the, the punishment, really great as well, okay? This is pretty common in the ancient Near East. You get it right, you get a lot, you get it wrong, and you're dead, okay? Limb by limb, your house is ruined, those kind of things. So, this is really bad news for the interpreters, okay? And really bad news for all the wise men, including Daniel and his friends, as we'll see. Verse 7, they answered a second time. They're going to try to weasel out of this. And they said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. Now, the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you don't make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. <clears throat> all the uh, 
magician's gulped here. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. He's, I think he's testing them here. Verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. Now, a little foreshadowing. There will be a man, okay, who can tell him the dream here. Um, there's not a man who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. Verse 11 is huge, okay, for this chapter. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. So three statements here. Two of them are wrong. One of them's right. Okay? There's not a man who can do this. There is a man who can do this. Only the gods can do this. You got that right. Okay? But he says the gods aren't with man. There's no connection there for them. They got that wrong. Okay? Because there is a, a person and a people group who do have a relationship, who do have access to the God who has this kind of knowledge. It's going to be Daniel and his friends, okay, as we see. It's kind of an ironic statement um, by the, uh, the Chaldeans and the magicians and the enchanters here. Verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious. He commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So Daniel wasn't brought in on this crack team of consultants, okay? But he's about to get the axe because of their failure. So he gets the news. Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch. Daniel, again, has wisdom. Daniel is kind of this sneaky cat, okay? He's cool under pressure. This is going to be the second time he's kind of talked himself out of a situation, okay? And Daniel 1, remember the food? He says, I just want to eat vegetables, okay? I don't want that meat. I don't want that wine. And at first they're like, no, we can't do that. We're going to get in trouble if you don't eat the food and if you start getting weak, if you're not healthy. And he kind of talks his way into a test and kind of gets out of it. He's got this kind of wisdom. He knows what to do and when to do it. He's going to do it again here. Then he replied with prudence and discretion, verse 14, to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him in time, that he might show the interpretation to the king. So Daniel goes and somehow buys himself some time, okay? Now, a couple of things strike me as I'm reading this. First is, Daniel seems to be cashing or, or, or writing a check that he's not sure he can cash, right? He's like, look, I can interpret the dream for you. Give me some time. Um, he, he's kind of stepping out on the limb here. But I guess either way, if he doesn't do it, he's dead, right? If he doesn't buy the time, he's dead. If he buys the time and gets it wrong, he's dead, okay? So Daniel does buy some time. Um, but once he gets this kind of time to figure out the dream, Daniel's got to go to work, all right, so he goes and he finds his friends, verse 17. Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. You're like, who are these cats, okay? This is Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. For you VeggieTales folks, right? You know what it is, Shad, Rack, and Benny. There we go. Now he makes it known to his companions and he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. So Daniel and his friends plead to God, um, and, and God reveals this to Daniel. Daniel blessed the God of heaven. He answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. And then look what he says about God. To whom belong wisdom and might. God, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. We saw this last week. Nebuchadnezzar conquers Judah but Daniel 1 would say um, God actually was orchestrating that, right? God gave Judah up to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's in control, but he's not. He removes kings, sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. Verse 23, to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you've given me wisdom and might and, I have, made, and have made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said to him, Don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king interpretation. So watch this. We'll come back to this. Daniel actually ends up saving these guys' lives. Okay? Now, this is going to be a matter of conflict for some interpreters. We'll come back to this, okay? Um, why Daniel kind of steps in for these guys here, um, and why they kind of get the benefit of Daniel's... Um, relationship here with, with the Lord. Verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, 
Are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king, may be made known to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Now, Daniel then goes on to tell the king what his dream was. And he gets it right, okay? He says, this is what you dreamt. And the king's like, okay, pretty impressive. You're onto something here. That is what I dreamt. And then Daniel gives them an interpretation. If you've read it, again, you've got a big statue, all these different parts made up of different materials. Then you've got a rock coming in from nowhere, crushing it. Okay, then the rock just grows and grows and grows, like one of those things you put in water, right? You know what I'm talking about? Those what kids do. And it just kind of grows and gets bigger. What's it called? Yes. I can see it in my mind, okay? That's exactly, I think, what he dreamt, all right? That's where the product idea came from, I think. Um, and the rock kind of grows and grows and grows. It takes over the whole earth. Um, and then Daniel says, okay, here's what it is. The statue has something to do with you and your kingdoms and the kingdoms that will come after you. The rock is the kingdom of God. That's the interpretation. Now, we're going to skip over that. We'll come back to it next week, okay? And try to kind of dig into it and see exactly what's going on there. But I do want to see how Nebuchadnezzar reacts, okay? Because um, you can kind of get the, the gist of this without knowing exactly the dream. Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face, and he paid homage to Daniel. And he commanded an offering and incense to be offered up to him. So, so Nebuchadnezzar is pretty impressed with Daniel, okay? He's, he's, he thinks he's on to something here. The king answered and said to Daniel, watch what he says here. This is pretty amazing. Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts. He made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. So Nebuchadnezzar is impressed with Daniel. He promotes him. Daniel, like a good friend, puts in a word for his buddies. Okay, says, hey, they were with me. Promote them too. Um, they're kind of separated at the end, which will explain some stories to come up. Daniel and his friends aren't kind of together. Daniel stays with the king of the court. Um, but Nebuchadnezzar kind of, kind of recognizes that Daniel's God has got something going on here, okay? Now, you're probably not seeing a conversion, here with Nebuchadnezzar, okay? These are kind of some impressive statements. Your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. As we see other stories, though, this doesn't make a big impression on Nebuchadnezzar, okay? He's very quickly going to have to relearn this lesson over and over and over again. Um, Nebuchadnezzar's in this very, like, polytheistic space, okay, as a human being, where there's this pantheon of gods, and it's really easy to add in another god without shuffling up a whole lot, okay? So you can give one god a whole lot of credit for something, but you can kind of keep what you had going on uh, safe and sound uh, as you already had it, okay? But for what it's worth, Nebuchadnezzar has this kind of amazing reaction here to Daniel. So you've got this amazing story again of Daniel bearing witness. Once again, Daniel's faithful to his God. Daniel's a blessing to the king and to the people around him. And then you have people starting to worship God. You have people starting to come to know who Daniel is. A man in exile, okay, faced with these tough situations, is able to stay faithful and come true. I think there are some... Some lessons for us to learn. I think if we let these texts, this text, kind of dig into our imagination, you and I will be better, better equipped, better equipped to live faithfully in the exile that we might find ourselves in. When you and I find ourselves in a world where there are these, these distractions and these temptations, and where what's around us often is not going to be helpful to us as we try to follow Christ as we try to be faithful to him. The first thing I want us to kind of um, dig out of this text is, is this idea, okay, that Christians are called to, what we do is we bear witness to our God by our distinctive wisdom, by our distinctive wisdom and our distinctive understanding. Now, throughout Daniel, chapter 2 here, Daniel's giving glory and attention to his God, okay? Everything he does kind of sheds light. It's like a spotlight, okay, coming back up. This is not with me. This is not my ability. This is not um, kind of the special skill I have. This is all about this God. This is all about what he's done, what he's able to do. And Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that at the end. Look in verse 20. Daniel's singing this doxology. He says, Blessed be the name of God. 
forever and ever. This would be Yahweh, okay, the name of God. This is not any God. This is not just a God, a generic God. This is a very specific God. He has a name. He has a people. He's done specific things in history. It's this God who's done this and who's able to do this. If you look in verse 23, to you, O God of my fathers, there's a tradition. This is the God of Abraham and of Moses and of Jacob. This is the God who took the Israelites out of Egypt, who took them over the Red Sea. He's a very, very specific, specific God. If you look in verse 28, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has made known to me. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. In verse 30, the mystery has been revealed to me not because of my wisdom or because I have more wisdom than the rest, but because the interpretation should be made known to you that the God of heaven has given you this dream. And then again, in the end of the, the chapter here in verse 47, the king answers, truly, you're a God, right? You're a God. Not my God, not the gods of my sorcerers and chanters. You're God. Truly, your God is the revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to do this. Daniel sheds light, he sheds glory, he bears witness to his God, to the God of his fathers, to the God who's revealed his name to him. And he does so through his wisdom, okay? He does so through his ability to navigate through life. So my favorite definition of wisdom, if you've been around for a while, you've heard this, is skill in the art of living. That's what wisdom is. It's the ability to make good choices, to be able to see out of the different options of choice in front of you, be able to see the right goal, the right motivations, and then to follow down that kind of path. It's just being, able, being good at this thing called life, right? Some people are good at school. Some people are good at relationships. Some people are good at uh, other things, right? Watching TV, destroying relationships, crashing cars. There's, I mean, you, you have skills and things. Wisdom is skill at life. I mean, all the different things that go into life, all the different aspects of it. Daniel has wisdom, and because of his relationship with this God, who's able to do these things, he has, he has a very distinct kind of wisdom. A wisdom that kind of catches people's attention. A wisdom that causes people to notice who this God is and who these, these people are who worship him. Now this is very similar to, to our task as Christians. Okay, as, as the people of God. Again, if you go to Acts chapter 1, okay, verse 8, this kind of the command Jesus gives to the church. You're going to go, the church, he says, and bear witness to the power of my resurrection. You're going to go be the people who, through the way you act, through the way you talk, through the way you live and exist, through the way the Spirit works in and through you, are going to shed light on who I am, are going to bring people's attention, are going to give glory to, to who I am and what I've done, what I am doing. We're called to bear witness. And we, we bear witness to a very specific God. And that's something I've touched on in the past. I think it's important for us to name God. We don't worship just a generic, vague God, right? A God who just generally wants us to be good people, wants us to be nice, wants us to feel good about ourselves. We worship a God who was a Jewish man, right? 2,000 years ago, and he lived and he died. And I've got news for you, good news on Father's Day, he's alive right now. And we don't come to remember a dead guy when we come to church. We come to be in the presence of the living, reigning Lord, Jewish man, we call him Jesus. And the God we worship is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. This is the specific God that we're throwing light to, that we're bearing witness to, to what He has done in the world and is doing in the world. And likewise, we've been given a distinctive wisdom. We've been given a distinctive way to live and be in the world, a way that's different from everybody else. Again, we've got this idea of being resident aliens, right? How you and I are called to live and think and be is different from those who don't know our God. He's the God who gives wisdom and reveals mysteries, gives understanding. Can we say this? God's wisdom is not common sense. Can we get it on the table? Which is why it's important to have a relationship with him, to be his people, right, if you want that wisdom. You can't just give it out. It only exists inside of a relationship with him, inside of, a, of the context where you're worshiping and knowing and following him. Um, God, we could say, himself is not common sense. Right? If you're thinking about God, if you were coming up with the idea of God, you wouldn't come up with the God of the Bible. Okay? Trinity, one and three, three and one. A God who becomes a human. Right? Do you think you would have kind of come up with that? A powerful God, create everything. I know what he's going to do. Become a human being. And then die. Right? That's not, a, that's not a common sense God. Paul would say, this is the upside down. Right? This is not the wisdom of the world. This is a stumbling block to people. They look at this and they go, this is foolish. And sometimes if you step back, you can kind of see that, right? Have you ever stepped back and go, wow, here's what we're saying. God became a man. 
Okay. <laughs> and God, as a man, died. Hmm. I mean, some of these things, you can kind of start to see why the Spirit's kind of important, right? To reveal truths to you. This is not just common sense type stuff. And the kind of life that God calls us to live is not a common sense kind of life. I mean, this is one of the things we need to start to realize. And as, as we kind of start to see that we are not everybody. The life that God calls Christians to is not the American dream. And I think at one level that's so obvious, and at another level that's so infected us at the core of who we are, that I'm not sure we'll ever truly 100% dig that out. I mean, you just don't read the Gospels and see what Jesus says to people, and you get kind of modern Western life. It's a very distinct kind of wisdom. It's a very distinct kind of way of being in the world. That you would sacrifice your life. That you would give up things for other people. I mean, that's just not how, how we're built. That's not how, how we naturally are. It's a distinct kind of living. But, like Daniel, when we live that way, we bear witness to, to our God. To the God who is that, that kind of God. To the God that has called us to that kind of life. Um, so, we kind of come back to one of the things we mentioned last week, which is... I think one of the postures we need to start to develop is the sense of looking out of the world around us and saying, it's okay for you to do that, but it's not okay for me to do that. I have a different story. I have a different set of values. I worship a different God. And I think this is important because my fear is that when you start talking about being resident aliens, okay, and start talking about being different from everybody else, you build in this sense of like paranoia, and pessimism, and like, kind of like you're offended and angry, right? And it's like this militia atmosphere, right? And I don't think that's correct. I mean, I don't think, and I, I said this, I'm just not been convinced yet that I should think people who aren't Christians should act like Christians. That just hasn't been, that hasn't been conveyed to me strongly enough. I don't think someone who doesn't believe in Christ will be able to or want to live the way that someone who does believe in Christ lives. So I don't think I should get upset when they don't. I don't think I should look around and go, wow, y'all are all evil, evil, evil people who deserve to die, and wow, it's all bringing down fire, and look at us, we're self-righteous, and we're good, and all this stuff. I think, you know, it's okay for you to live like that. You don't know, you don't know my God, but it's not okay for me to live that way. I'm a different person. I'm, I belong to a different God. I have a different story. I've been given a different kind of wisdom. I'm, I'm an alien. I'm an exile in a world that doesn't know Christ. And if I know Christ and someone else doesn't, my life should probably look a lot different than their life. The way I spend my money, the way I relate to other people, the way I worship, the way I raise my children, the way I celebrate holidays. I mean, those things should, should, should be distinctive about us. They're distinctive about Daniel. And, and that was one of the ways Daniel shed light on his God. That was one of the ways Daniel bore witness to his God. Now, this is difficult to do, okay? It's difficult to be an exile. It's difficult to hold your own, in a sense, when you're surrounded by temptations and pitfalls and those kind of things, which is why I think it brings to the next point, the life of the church, okay? The community together, the life of the church is crucial for exiles to live faithfully. And when I say church, what I mean is globally, okay? So there's this global church, it goes across nations and states, okay? Not Arkansas and not Canada, okay? But everywhere else. <laughs> it's in the Bible somewhere, okay? Uh, there's kind of this, this global community. And we can even say this. Um, the church is transtemporal. So it actually stretches back in time. And will stretch future in time, right? So when you're a part of the church, you're not just a part of people worshiping all over the world today. You're actually a part of a long line of people who've walked before you. Hebrews would say this great cloud of witnesses. In Revelation, it would say when we sing songs of praise, we're actually joining a chorus that's already singing in heaven. The saints of old. They were singing around the clock 24-7. And we're just kind of chiming in with them. One day we'll, we'll join them. There's this, this church that, that you and I belong to, that we, we come to belong to. And it's crucial to live in that community, to, to pour into that community, to belong to that community. It's crucial if you want to be in exile. Again, the Jewish people have had lots of practice at this, right? Because they've lived in exile. They know what this is like. The early Christians had lots of practice at this. We have not had a lot of practice in this. But we need to start kind of recognizing and start getting familiar with this. So Daniel and his friends, they understood that they were Israelites. They belonged to a people, and the people wasn't Babylon, 
When they looked out at the enchanters and the sorcerers, they said, that's not who I belong to. I belong to the Israelites. And what the Jewish people did in exile was they formed these communities, these synagogues, okay? And they kept tight. They had these tight-knit communities. And they sang songs and they told stories. And they came and reminded themselves who they were. And they taught Torah. They taught scriptures. And they held each other accountable. And this was one of the key things for them to remain faithful. You'll notice in verse 17, the first thing Daniel does, right, when he writes this check, is he goes, i got to keep with my friends. Right? He doesn't go to the other enchanters and sorcerers and go, hey, let's put all of our best minds on this. How are we going to do this? He looks around and goes, Israelites, come here. This is probably something they had been doing, right? I mean, I'm guessing that four of them had already kind of teamed up in the situation they were in. This isn't something new for Daniel to go and to go pray with them. Daniel gets in a bind and he goes, hey, we've got we've to figure something out. We need, to, we need to go seek God quickly and furiously. And they go and they throw rocks at the gates of heaven. They pray together. Daniel knew he belonged to this new community. I think you and I as Christians need to recover the sense that when, we're, when we become a Christian, we are grafted into an actual community of people. I think this is something that you lose, in a sense, when you assume everyone's Christian and everything is Christian. You have no need to belong to a people. Everyone is your people. Just by, just by being born, just by existing, you belong to the church. You're God's people. Um, but the scriptures were constantly saying, when, when, you're, uh, when you become a Christian, you're brought into this new humanity. It's this new actual group of people. Now, it's not a national group of people again, but it's as real as a nation. Does that make sense? So as real as Daniel found himself bound to other Israelites, is as real as you and I physically are bound to other people in the church. To where Jesus, in this really haunting scene when he comes to Paul, remember in, in Acts um, Saul, Paul, as he was persecuting Christians, he comes and he says, what? Why are you persecuting me? And Paul goes, I haven't been touching you. I don't even know who you are. And he goes, my people. There's this sense that his people are bound to Jesus. When you're with Jesus, you're bound to his people as well. What you do to his people, you do to Jesus. So I make this joke constantly, and I just love it so much, right? Church is not the mutual Facebook friends of Jesus. Like, we all know the same guy, so we just come together and we happen to be near each other, right? No, we actually belong to each other. There's an actual new humanity, a new group of people that you and I have been brought into. And we need to recover the sense, particularly if you want to stay faithful, I think, in exile. We need to team up. We need to, to hold hands. We need to link arms together. I think it's important for you and I to, to take, slowly but surely, a sense of ownership of the church. For us to slowly but surely start to identify ourselves with the church. So let me ask you this question. What is your first we? What's your first community that you identify with? When you start talking or start complaining or start ranting or start rejoicing, who's the we? So you say, we really messed up or we really need to change or we're really doing good. I can tell you this. Um, one of the things that frustrates me about lots of what happens in churches is the we is one of two things. It's national or it's individual, okay? So I've been actually looking and, and going through some other series on Daniel uh, as I've, I've been preparing for this. And, and almost without fall, when they start getting to, um, we need to be faithful, it's America needs to be faithful, not the church. Now, do you see the big difference between the two? There's a big difference. Your first we, when you start thinking that things are wrong and we need to fix things, is the we of your nation. And not the we of God's people. Which I've got news for you. There are some people in America who aren't God's people. I mean, I hope that's just not the biggest shock in the world to you. Now, if you listen to political discourse on the left and the right, that's not the sense you'd get. We apply scriptures to talk about Israel to America, which is why we do it in our churches as well. That's our first we. But I'm saying, what if our first we was the church? What if our first sense of who we are and who we belong to was not our nation, but our, our church, the global church? And then the other kind of pitfall I see a lot is individualism. So when we start thinking about we, we think of I. Which might not sound right, but we're in a kind of a very individualistic kind of society. And I think we've drunk very deeply from the wells of, of individualism. So you see this in churches as well, right? You start reading the scriptures, and all the kind of application gets pointed out towards you as a person. It's kind of the self-helpy, here's your four steps, right? So here's how you as a person... With no regard for the people around you, you don't need the church. The church isn't mentioned. The people around you don't mention. You could sit at home and watch this and be fine. Here's your four steps. Here's how you'll be faithful. 
There's no sense of, it's the we, it's us, it's the church. It would be an interesting question to ask yourself. Can you be a Christian without the church? Now, you might answer that kind of like theologically, philosophically, right? Like, well, God's grace does this and that. Salvation works like this. But think practically. In the world around us, can you be a Christian without the church? And I think your answer would reveal a lot about kind of how you see the world and how you see the faith and how you see kind of what's happened in salvation. There was a, a young guy I knew, still know, and I had a lot of respect for him. And I found out recently that, I mean, I had a lot of stuff for him. I found out recently he, he hasn't, doesn't have a church, doesn't go to church. Um, I had a lot of stuff from him as a Christian young man. And I was kind of like shocked and really disappointed in him. And he had the hardest time understanding where I was coming from. He kind of laughed it off, shook it off. And in my mind, I, I mean, I really, I just don't have a whole lot of hope. I mean, I just don't think you're going to last. If you don't have a, a family to belong to, if you, don't, if you don't, haven't really plugged in somewhere, I don't think you can assume that you'll be safe just floating out there by yourself. I don't think you will be. It's going to be the fight of your life linked up with other people. I mean, we're exiles. We're aliens. We, we need to, to, to get this kind of ownership of the church. Um, so there's more we could say here. I could offend you a little bit. I'm going to skip over that, okay? We'll, we'll move on to the next point. I think the church is important for discipleship, okay? So this is one of the, the reasons here. Um, it's important for our sense of being able to follow Christ, for our sense of being able to be who we're called to be. Um, so Daniel, of course, prays with his uh, faithful Israelites. They keep their identity together. Um, and, and I think you and I, if it's true, again, the world around us is not Christian necessarily all the time. If that's true, then we're going to need to detox. I think that's a good word for it, right? I mean, we need to come in and realize that what we've been getting told all week, that who you are is largely dependent on what you own or what you make. That's a big message hitting you from almost everywhere to the extent that you don't realize it. You're going to need to come detox somewhere. With a group of people who say, okay, that's, that's, can we all say that's a lie? Is it? Yeah? Okay, we're good. Okay, yeah. What does that mean if that's a lie? How do we live? How do we work that out? I mean, there are all kinds of different things that, that we're going to need to kind of come down from. Now, it's interesting. Um, I heard a story from an uh, uh, interview with a, a pastor of a black church in the civil rights movement. Okay? And they were asking him, if, I don't know if you knew this. I don't, I'm not, I don't want to make a characterization now or, or back then, but black churches are typically longer than our kind of upper-class Caucasian services, right? We're in, we're out by lunch, we're at Lupe Tortilla, okay? Uh, and it's all kind of this nice kind of system. Um, well, kind of other churches kind of last for a much longer time, particularly the civil rights kind of era. They go to church and it just be all kind of day. And they ask the pastor, I mean, what's the, what's the deal here? Why are, y'all, why are y'all in church for hours and hours and hours? And here's what he said. It was so interesting. He said, think about it. All week we're told we're not humans. From everywhere. Even when we drink water, we're told that we're not, we're not equal. We're not humans. It's going to take some time together for us to get that junk out of our head. We're going to need a few hours on Sunday, if you don't mind, to read the scriptures and to sing songs and to just laugh and to dance and to be around each other. In fact, if you watch, almost everywhere where Christians are a minority, church services are really long. If you look globally. Why is that? Because they understand if we're going to be faithful, we need each other and we need time with each other. And we need to do some serious studying of the scriptures. Because when I turn on the TV, I'm not getting the scriptures. And we need to do some serious talking to each other. Because I'm talking to my neighbor. I love my neighbor. He can be a great guy. I can get a lot of great stuff from him. But I'm not getting Christian discipleship. We need time together. We need to sing together. We need to laugh together. We need to play together. I remember when I went to, to Kenya and we went to church and it was just an all day thing. I was like, I'm tired. What are we doing here? And it's just, I mean, they don't want to leave. And it's because they're living in a slum. And they want 12 hours to be able to see the world the way God describes it. And not the way that they experience it during the week. They need a biblical imagination built into them. I think we've been living on the assumption for the past few decades, maybe centuries, that just by existing we have a biblical imagination. I've got news, we don't. And we need to get together and, and build one. We need to get together and read the scriptures and worship and those kind of things. And then I think, last point here, the church is vital for mission. The church, the life of the community is vital for you and I to do and be what we're supposed to do and be in the world. So if you'll notice, Daniel's friends are a blessing to everyone around them. They're a blessing to King Nebuchadnezzar, who, by the way, is not the greatest guy in the world. 
And they're a blessing to the evil sorcerers and enchanters and Chaldeans, who, again, by the way, are not the best people in the world. They, they save their lives. He's kind of a friend of Nebuchadnezzar. It's this very ambiguous situation where Daniel's this real faithful guy who's willing to die for certain things, but he's still kind of buddy-buddy at times with the biggest, baddest dude on the, the planet, who goes down a lot of stories and not a, not a, not a savory kind of character. But, but Daniel, as he's bearing witness to his God with this distinctive way of living, as he's being faithful, he's blessing the people around him. Now this goes back to the very beginning when God calls a people in Genesis 12. Remember from Genesis 12, the very beginning, he says, I will bless you so that you will be a, what is it? Blessing. blessing. So people have sometimes, I mean, maybe even the Jewish people at times got this kind of wrong. They thought it was all about themselves, right? I actually had a conversation with an Asian who told me that he wasn't going to be a Christian and didn't want to be a Christian because God had, the God of the Bible had ignored his people for so long. He was like, he played around with these, these, this, these Israelites for so long, this little tiny group of people. And then even when it began this Christian thing, it took a while for it to get over to us. He's like, if he cared that little about all of my ancestors and all of my, my church and my country, why should I care about him? And I'm like, okay, well, you missed the point here. The point wasn't that God loved the Israelites more than else. He was using them. He was going to bless them so they could be a blessing. I mean, that was from day one. Over and over in the Old Testament, I'm, y'all aren't special. In Deuteronomy 7, there's nothing cool about y'all. Y'all aren't powerful. Y'all aren't big. Y'all don't impress me. <laughs> How many times do I have to do all, all kinds of weird stuff to y'all to get you to realize y'all just aren't that, that... I mean, the Israelites messed up a lot if you've read the story. God chose them to use them to be a blessing to the rest of the world. And in fact, Jeremiah told the exiles in 29, he says, when y'all go to the city, seek the welfare of the city. Don't go in with swords. Daniel and your friends, don't go infiltrate Nebuchadnezzar's palace and then try to bring it down in the middle of the night. Go and be a blessing. Even to bad people, even to bad people. You are called to be a blessing to the world. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Okay, Remember I talked about in verse 24, Daniel goes and he uh, kind of hurries up to Arioch and says, don't destroy the men. Okay, the wise men of Babylon, bring me for the king. I can save the day. Okay. Now, there is a, uh, a small kind of strain of interpretation. It goes back to John Calvin. Okay. If you know anything about John Calvin, uh, Calvin did some really great things. And he had some things where he was kind of off a little bit. Okay. So Calvin, one of the things about him that I love is he was, he was a great interpreter of the scriptures. He was very textual. Calvin made a lot of decisions with the text that I think if everyone would have stuck to, we'd be in a better shape today, right? We wouldn't have a lot of the debates we have, a lot of the questions that we have. Calvin had this amazing ability to look at a passage and determine what the point was. He kind of cut through all the mess that people kind of build up around it. Well, Calvin also kind of goes down and famously in history for being this kind of uh, strict, severe guy, right? And he has this kind of controversy with a guy that may or may not have ended up killing a heretic, okay? Um, again, kind of small fries compared to a lot of what was happening in the world, but because he's such a big figure, kind of he gets um, some, some light thrown on him as history goes on. Now, Calvin looks at this, and Calvin says, Daniel actually makes a mistake here. These men deserve to die, and Daniel should have done one or two things. He should have either waited until they had died, and then come in and said, oh, hey, I got the interpretation. <laughs> or he should have come and said, hey, I got the interpretation, they didn't, so let's go ahead and kill them. And keep us alive, right? And then at the end of the day, not only are they promoted, but all these evil guys are dead, right? It's like the best of, of both worlds. Um, and again, remember, these, these evil sorcerers, these enchanters, were bad people. And in the Hebrew Bible particularly, there are all these, these, these mean things said about them. And there is a death, I mean, if a Hebrew had done this and got caught, they would have been killed. I mean, the death penalty was kind of due to them in, in certain uh, legal contexts. Well, Calvin looks at this and goes, I would have done it differently, Okay, these guys deserve to die. I think, though, he might be missing the bigger point, which is Daniel, by bearing witness, is a blessing to everyone around him. Even people who don't deserve it. Even enemies. I mean, as if once we were enemies of God, and we received grace, and someone was a blessing to us, right, and we didn't deserve it. All the way back, I mean, you find this in Exodus, the, the command and the, the kind of vocation to love people, even enemies. Obviously, um, kind of centered in the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus, love your enemies. Daniel is a blessing to, to people who, who don't even deserve it here. And I think by that, he is fulfilling the mission of the church from Genesis 12. I'll bless you so that you'll be a blessing. And these, and these, these sorcerers, these enchanters, these Chaldeans, they end up going, hey, Daniel, thanks for that, buddy. And just like Nebuchadnezzar, who knows, right? Who knows 
which of them said, Your God is the God of gods, and your Lord is the Lord of lords. So Daniel is, is, is fulfilling the mission here. I think that the church as a community is vital to the, to the success, to the influence of, of um, God's plan in the world. What God wants to do and how God wants to influence the world largely involves the church and their willingness to step up and to be who they're called to be um, and to be faithful when they're called to be faithful. Okay, let's wrap it up this morning. Let me ask you a couple questions. Let me ask you this. I think one of the, the things that, that we need to do if we want to kind of adopt this attitude of being resident aliens is ask ourselves this question. Where are we weakest? So in the world of Babylon, okay, remember it's kind of a metaphor for the fallen kind of civilization around us. What part of Babylon whispers most seductively to you? I mean, what, what part of that kind of purrs in your ear constantly 24-7? Like, if you're Daniel, are you like, man, that meat looks really good? Or that wine looks really, really good, right? I mean, I could have some, no one would know, it's not a big deal, I could still be an Israelite. We're probably meant to think that there were other Israelites eating the food and, and the, the, the drink. And Daniel one that just him and his friends are, are singled out here. I mean, what, what part of, of the world kind of whispers to you? Kind of constantly draws you and say, just, you can cross this line, it's not a big deal. What part of Babylon seduces you? Um, and then what's your community? What's your support system? What, what's your experience and involvement in the, the church and the community of God's people? What does it look like? Does it need to change? Does it need to be strengthened? How can you do so? Because I think, again, you're going to need it. We're going to need it. In the situation we're in, and in the situation we're going to continue to be in, in, in maybe bigger and bigger ways. You and I are called to live different lives. We have a different God. It's not okay for us to do certain things. We're called to worship and know the one true God. We're called to commit to the church. And the good news is it's possible. The good news is we have Daniel, right? Daniel was able to stay faithful in a hostile environment. You and I can do so as well. We've been given grace. We've been given salvation. Again, I don't think this should be something that causes pessimism or anxiety or anger. I think this is joyful. I think we can look at, at people around us making mistakes, doing things, doing things wrong, and we can go, how great is God that he has given us the life he's given us? That he's, he's shown us the path to life. That we can participate in that now and lead others to that. We should be encouraged. And then I want to invite you, okay? I want to invite you to the table. We, we participate in communion every week here. This is a time... This is one of these practices, right, that the, the people in the synagogue would have started to develop. They had these meals that they would participate in as a way to bring them into the tradition, as a way to remind them of who God is, what he had done, and who they were in him of their identity. So we come, and we come to worship and rejoice. And then we come to kind of re-enter our identity. We commit to Christ. We commit to his kingdom. We commit to being faithful. And even at the table, there's this element of we're committing to each other. I mean, there's a reason um, that we... Don't do, like, saran-wrapped McDonald's communion, right? Because that we is I. Does that make sense? I mean, there's a historical reason why you drink and eat of the same loaf and the same cup. I mean, first of all, it used to be a meal where we were all together. But it's because at the table, we're committing to each other. I'm saying I commit to Christ, I commit to his people. We're unified here at the table. So I want to invite you, as we do every week, those resident aliens, come and commit, come and worship. Come and say, this is my God, and I'll follow him. I'll be faithful. And I'll be faithful with this group of people who've been surrounded, surrounded me. Let's pray together.